The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. The topic today is what the Bible says about the Mosaic Law. What the Bible says about the Mosaic Law. This is a topic that several people had suggested, even as recently as just a couple of weeks ago, but for the last couple of summers and haven't gotten to it. And in studying it, not just in the last two weeks, but for 20 years uh, as a Bible teacher, theologian, pastor, this issue of what the Bible says about the Mosaic Law and specifically how Christians in the church relate to the Mosaic Law is probably, from my perspective, one of the most complicated or complex theological issues that I would have to deal with as a Bible teacher. Incredibly complex. There's a book called Five Views on the Law and Gospel and written by five evangelical Christian Bible teachers, godly men. And they have different ways of explaining it. There's a lot of overlap there, but there are some differences that I think are significant. Uh, and that, just reading that book just reminded me of how complicated, complex, heavy duty this issue is. And don't think that what you get today is the comprehensive answer and everything God has to say about the issue because it's not. Today, it's kind of like we're just scratching the surface. And I've got 12 points there, and those are merely, I'm not going to exhaust all those 12 points either. Those are just kind of earmarks or uh, posts, if you will, by which I think, or data points by which the discussion and the study needs to be confined within those 12 points. And you can't go outside those 12 points uh, because it might be secondary, tangential, or not immediately related. So I thought these were 12 issues that I gleaned that I thought are of first importance to address, think through, study, to come to a comprehensive understanding about uh, the Christian in relation to the Mosaic Law. And it's not what the Bible says about law. It's what the Bible says about the Mosaic Law. Very specific, very important distinction uh, hopefully that alleviates some confusion as we go through. We're talking about an entity that is very specific, given at a very specific point in time to a very specific group of people for a very specific purpose, for a very specific limited amount of time. That would be my perspective. That would be the Mosaic Law. What does the Bible say about the Mosaic Law? And you might be thinking, sitting there uh, thinking, well, who cares? Well, if you're a Christian, you should really, 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 really care. This is a tremendously important and practical issue for you as a Christian. And whether you realize it or not, you have actually had to deal with this in your Christian life and in your Christian walk, whether you recognize it or not. I guarantee it has come up at one point or another in your Christian life with respect to making decisions, living a life of holiness, dealing with sanctification, making decisions about what you're going to refrain from and why you want to refrain from it, what you can do, what you can't do as a Christian. This issue has intersected with your life. That's why it's important. Another reason why it's important is the Mosaic Law dominates the Bible. We say as Christians, yeah, we believe in the New Testament. We also believe in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, the, major, the super majority of the Old Testament is dominated by the Mosaic Law. So most of our Bible falls under the purview of the Mosaic Law. And we say we believe in the whole Bible. Therefore, we've got to think through, well, what do we believe about the Mosaic Law? What do we understand about it? How does it apply to the life of a Christian today? Or does it apply to the life of a Christian today? Because some Christians would adamantly say the Mosaic Law does not apply to the Christian life today. And hence, therein lies the debate. So hopefully we just look into scriptures together. We can kind of clear some of the fog. 
uh, bring some understanding. And I guarantee you, I, you will leave with new questions and some new confusion and new fog in your brain. Sorry about that to spoil your lunch. But hopefully those questions are generated by scriptures themselves, issues that flow from the Bible and maybe some things you haven't even thought of yet. But just to show you that this is relevant and practical in your Christian life, I have an oral question. I'm going to give you an oral exam. You are not allowed to commiserate or share or talk to the person next to you. But raise your hand if this applies to you. Here's the oral quiz. No looking around either. Keep eyes on your own paper. Raise your hand if you think we as Christians should obey the Ten Commandments. Raise your hand. Don't be a sissy. Raise your hand if you think we as a Christian. Hmm. Okay, put your hands down. Wow. Interesting. Because I want to remind you that to obey the Ten Commandments means to obey all of the Ten Commandments. You cannot pick and choose. That was clear when God, through Moses, gave the law. All one, 613 laws. It didn't say pick and choose. You don't need to raise your hand on this one, but pretend like raise your hand invisibly in your brain on the next question. How many of you uh, obey, submit to, and practice commandment number four, which says keep the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, holy? That means you don't work, you don't mow your lawn, you don't go to your job, you don't work at the bank. You celebrate worship of God on that day and not on Sunday. And if you break that law, you deserve to be stoned to death or you are obligated to go stone another believer to death if they are breaking the Sabbath. So raise your hand in your brain invisibly if you are doing that, because that's what it means to obey and submit to the Ten Commandments, namely commandment number four. And I would guarantee that the supermajority of people in here do not obey and submit to and practice commandment number four. So when I ask you again, uh, do you submit to and obey the Ten Commandments? Now your hand goes kind of halfway and you're scratching your head. Well, I'm not sure. Well, some of them, not all of them. Then in addition to that, in when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments to his people to obey the Ten Commandments wasn't just to know what they are and then practice them. You also had to practice, submit to and implement the consequences of violating the Ten Commandments. So if you are not implementing the consequences of the Ten Commandments today, then you are not practicing the Ten Commandments. Well, what are the consequences? Well, the consequences for committing adultery was death. And I don't see people stoning people to death for adultery today. The consequence uh, for some violations of dishonoring your parents, uh, cursing your parents, or physically violently attacking your parents warranted the death penalty as well. So certain violations of commandment number five demanded the death penalty. And I could go, uh, yeah, worshiping a false god, blaspheming God's name, violating the Sabbath day on Saturday. All these warranted the death penalty. And I guarantee that most of us, if not all of us, none of us are submitting to, obeying, honor, or under the authority of the Ten Commandments in that regard. So when I ask you, are you obligated as a Christian to obey the Ten Commandments? You've you got to really think it through of what that means. Now, in saying that, I am not saying that we don't, uh, we don't have the freedom to violate the morality of the Ten Commandments. I'm not saying that. We're going to get to that in just a second. But I just kind of wanted to lay the foundation to kind of get you to think, maybe catch yourself. 
uh, I guarantee nobody's obeying the, the fifth commandment. Uh, honor your parents. Honor your mother and father. And the promise was, if you honor your mother and father the right way biblically, then you will live long in the land. You know what the land was? It was the land of Israel. And I don't see anybody here that lives in Israel. Uh, so we are not fulfilling commandment number five. The way it was written and intended by God to Moses, to the Israelites. So a change has taken place. We need to understand what that change is. By the way, you know, if you're going to say that you follow and obey and submit to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments was only part of 613 commandments. You can't pick and choose. It's the whole Mosaic law or none of it. That's what the book of James says. That's what Jesus said. It's one entity. It all goes together. It is seamless. So it's, well, I just obey the Ten Commandments. Well, actually, you don't because you don't obey, and I don't, the Fourth Commandment and details of the Fifth Commandment and the consequences of all Ten Commandments. Uh, but it's an entire entity, a synthetic whole given by God to a specific people, and it is, was to be obeyed and implemented that way as a, a, a synthesis of all these 613 commands, not just ten of them. So let's go ahead and look at these uh, points I've come up with regarding just things to guide our thinking regarding the Ten Commandments why it was given and how it applies to the Christian today. So let's go ahead and look at those. Uh, Twelve points, and you laugh, thinking, McManus, you're never going to get through twelve. Oh, ye of little faith. <laughs> let's do it. Okay, a lot of the theology on the Ten Commandments and how it relates to the Christian and the church, actually all of the theology just about, is in the New Testament. The challenge is when you're dealing with the word law in the New Testament, which occurs hundreds of times. And the word law, namas in Greek, antinomian comes from namas, Greek. Anti is against. Nomian, namas, law. You're against the law. You're a lawless person. You're antinomian. You're an anarchist. So namas is the word for law. And there are four primary usages of namas in the Greek New Testament. Law. So whenever you see the word law, you've got to figure out, well, what does it mean? Uh, the meaning ultimately is always defined by the immediate context of how the word is used. But the same word can be used four different ways routinely. Uh, namas, law, can refer to the entire Old Testament. There are times where Paul and Jesus himself just said law. And what he meant was Genesis to Malachi, the whole thing. Uh, law can also refer to just the five first books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, all five of them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, Genesis doesn't have the Mosaic law. So there's an example of the word law, including more than the Mosaic law again. So law can mean the whole Old Testament. It can mean the whole Pentateuch. More times than not with the Apostle Paul, law means the Mosaic law that was given by God in the book of Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. Those 613 laws for the nation of Israel. That's how Paul uses it most of the time. And then occasionally the word namas or law is used to just refer to laws in general. Uh, a law from the government, a law that Jesus spoke, a law that we're supposed to obey, a law as a principle. So those are your four usages and the way you wade through it. Uh, golden rule number one of Bible interpretation, context, context, context. Uh, so as a precursor, let's go on. And now we're going to talk specifically about the more narrow use of the word law, and that's the Mosaic law. Point number one, we need to understand as Christians that the Mosaic law is good, holy, and righteous. Good, holy, and righteous. And if you did have your Bible and you wanted to flip to 
Romans 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about the theology of the law, how it, it relates to the Christian today, now that Jesus has come, lived a perfect life, crucified, risen, ascended on high, and now there's a new day. And there's a new way to relate to the law because there's a new entity called the church. It's not just Jews anymore under the Mosaic Law. It's a new people, Jew and Gentile, united together in Christ, the new man, a mystery in ages past, a mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament. You don't have the church in the Old Testament. You don't have the body of Christ in the Old Testament. It's new. That's what the Apostle Paul said. So as a result, we have this new entity called the church, the body of Christ. And there's a new. And so we have to think about how we relate to the law. And basically, Paul argues we're not under the law, the Mosaic law anymore. We are under new laws. We'll talk about those in a second. But Romans 7, verse 7, he just simply says, well, what shall we as Christians say then? Is the law sin or bad? And Paul says, absolutely not. Megenita, God forbid. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the Mosaic law, the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. So Paul's just arguing for the Christian The law is not bad and the law is not sinful in and of itself. As a matter of fact, just the opposite is true. The law is good. And that's his conclusion in verse 12 of Romans 7, where he says, So then the law from God that came through Moses and the mediator of angels, the Mosaic law is holy. God is holy, by the way. It is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So the Mosaic law up front, we need to realize, was a holy law, a perfect law. It came from God. Holy, righteous, and good. Now, I do want you to flip to 1 Timothy 1.8, because this is very important, where Paul, again, is talking about the Mosaic Law. How do we relate to the Mosaic Law? What is the purpose of the Mosaic Law? There are Christians who think in order to get more holy, more sanctified, approval from God to alleviate guilt, to live their life right, they have to obey the Mosaic Law. I have to obey the Ten Commandments which is hard to do when you got the Sabbath one in there and living in the land of Israel in there. Um, so Paul comments on, well, what is the purpose of the law today in the era of the church, the body of Christ? And what's the inherent nature of the law of Moses? First Timothy 1, starting at verse 8, uh, Paul says, we know, we as Christians and me as an apostle, we know that the law, the Mosaic law, it is good. Key. If one uses it lawfully, that is huge. We've got to use it the right way. Today as Christians, we must use the Mosaic Law the right way. The Pharisees used the Mosaic Law the wrong way. They knew the law. They memorized the law. They memorized 613 rules. And then they tried to earn salvation and God's approval in obedience and compliance to those laws. And they messed up. So they misused the Mosaic Law, thinking that by obeying it, they could earn salvation. You can't work for your salvation. Salvation is a gracious gift from God that cannot be earned. So that's why Paul's saying the, the Mosaic law is good if you use it the right way. If you're using it for legalism, that's wrong. That is bad for the Pharisees and also for Christians, for Christians who use any part of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. Legalistically, that is illegitimate and wrong. It's not good. It's bad. That's what he's saying. For we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made here. It is for a righteous man. If you're a Christian, you have been made righteous in Christ. God the Father looks down on you as a Christian, and He doesn't see you. He sees Jesus Christ crucified and risen in your place. You are sinless, legally speaking. You are pristine, positionally speaking. 
Adopted into the family of God, you are a righteous woman, a righteous man, a saint, a holy one, separated in Christ, united with him, absolutely perfect, totally forgiven of all your sins legally from God's point of view. That being true, when you go back to verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man. The law is not made for a born-again Christian. The law is not made for a forgiven believer. The Mosaic law he's talking about. Well, what is the law for then? Well, it's always been the same. The law is for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who killed their fathers or mothers, for murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Boy, we could use a good dose of the Mosaic Law here in America, couldn't we? That's what it is for. Law is for restraining sinful behavior and sinful people. It is 100% negative in its purpose in this regard. To, restrain, to define sin, restrain sin, it's for sinful people. That's why, uh, and we'll get to this again later in your house, if I were to ask every single one of you, heads of household or the children, write down the top ten rules you have in your house. And if I read those laws that you have in your house, that would say a lot about your family. It would say a lot about how you parent. It would say a lot about your character, because that's what law does. And then you've got all these rules, and you're tra- you have rules of the house to restrain all those other sinners that live with you. That's why we have laws. So that is its purpose. Uh, it's holy. It is good. It is righteous. Point number two, the, the Mosaic Law came after the Abrahamic Covenant. By the way, the Mosaic Law is also called the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. We live in the era of the New Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is called the Old Covenant. 400 years before God gave uh, Moses the, the Mosaic Covenant, he gave Abraham the Abrahamic Covenant. And I, if you have your Bible, go to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Because the rest of the Bible is a, an expanded commentary on Genesis 12. I don't know if you knew that. And Genesis 12 flows right out of Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve commit sin. God punishes uh, sin. God curses the earth. God gives a promise that a Redeemer will come. And then he expands on that promise uh, 2,000 years later with Abraham. Abraham is a pagan. He's 75 years old. He's called out of Babylon. Uh, God comes to him literally somehow in a theophany and says this to Abraham when he's 75 years old and makes a promise to him. He doesn't give him a binding law. He gives him a promise. And this promise becomes the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, where God makes a vow unto himself, meaning it is an eternal, unconditional covenant that God will always keep. The Abrahamic covenant is still in vogue today. It is still uh, functioning under the umbrella of the new covenant. And even more of it will be fulfilled in the future. But let's just read the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives here in Babylon, and all these unbelievers... I'll leave your father's house, which was hard to do, and go to the land which I will show you. Over there where all those uh, pagan Canaanites live, 500 miles away. When you do, God said, I will make you a great nation. God is in charge here. God's doing everything. He's taking the initiative. I am going to make you a great nation. That nation became the nation of Israel. Promise number one. I will bless you. God blessed Abraham out of his socks the entire time until he died at 175. I will make you I will make your name great. Another blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. That's true even to this day. Descendants of Abraham 
in the true sense, are blessed by God. The one who curses you, Abraham, and your people, I will curse. You become God's enemy. That is still true today. And get this. I don't know if you knew this, but if you're not a Jew and you're a Gentile and you're a Christian, you're in the Bible. This is your biography. You're at the end of verse 3. Do you want to put your name in there? Hey, it's legit. Because God said 2000 B.C. And in you, Abraham, and in your loins, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as we go throughout the rest of the Bible, we know that that is referring to Gentiles who would be saved in the future because through the coming of Jesus Christ. 2000 B.C. 4,000 years ago, that promise was made. That promise has never been revoked. It's an eternal covenant that God made with Abraham. So this covenant came first. It was unconditional. It came before the Mosaic Covenant. It came 400 years before the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant where God made a vow and the other people and the people made a vow. God said, here's what you need to do. And they said, we will obey. And if we don't, off with our heads. Well, they kind of blew it. So you need to realize the covenant that came first, the covenant of promise, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant came later. God used the Abrahamic covenant to help manage some of the details temporarily of the Abrahamic covenant, particularly regarding the stewardship of the land. And then the Mosaic covenant uh, was became obsolete, but the Abrahamic covenant and its blessings continue on even to this day. Point, the Mosaic law came after the Abrahamic covenant. Can't get them confused. Uh, And so the Abrahamic covenant takes precedence over the Mosaic covenant. Number three, there's an asterisk there for a reason. This is one of the main points. The Mosaic law was given to Israel. It was not given to the church. It was not given to born again Christians. It was not given to the body of Christ. It was not given to Noah, who was not a Jew. It was given to the nation of Israel. It wasn't even given to Abraham. The Mosaic law was given to about Two million Jews under the leadership of Moses for a certain period of time to help manage physical truths, realities, blessings and cursings flowing from the Abrahamic covenant. And it would be temporary. One verse I want to read. I've got some there for you, but read. Go to Leviticus 26. Can anything good come out of Leviticus? Yes, this verse. Uh, Leviticus 26 at the end. God gives a God does a lot of talking through Moses. And a lot of promises and a lot of commandments and a lot of curses. And after basically giving the Mosaic law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Look at verse 46. So this would be the second to last chapter of Leviticus. So God gives all these laws and then he concludes by saying this. uh, Actually, Moses probably wrote this down. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which Yahweh, the Lord, established between, get this, himself and the sons of Israel. Through Moses at Sinai. That was the historical reality. The Mosaic law was not given to the church. By the way, the church is not the new Israel. The church is not Israel. In the New Testament, every time it says Jew, it means ethnic blood Jew. Anytime it says Israel, it means ethnic Israel. Every single time. And some people try to spiritualize it, allegorize it and say, well, here Jew means uh, Gentile Christian. Well, no, it doesn't. Consistently, if you look at the context, so very important. So the Mosaic law with its 613 laws, it's three annual feasts where the men under 25 got to, you know, migrate towards Jerusalem. Have you done that lately? Then you're not obeying the Mosaic law and all of its temple sacrifices. Have you killed an animal? No, I probably shouldn't ask that question because we'd probably be saddened and embarrassed. Um, 
They had their temple sacrifices. We're not doing that anymore. We're not killing animals. We're not killing lambs. We're not uh, splurting animal blood all over the place. Uh, so that's just more evidence that we're not doing the Mosaic law, which was given to Moses, commanded by God. Point number four. The Mosaic law was temporary and inferior. God's intention was only to give it for a short while. Galatians 3.19. By the way, if you want to do more in-depth reading on this, read Galatians chapter 3 and 4. Because that's the whole discussion of Galatians 3 and 4. How does a Christian relate to the Mosaic law? Here's a summary statement that Paul makes in Galatians 3.19. Well, why did God give the Mosaic law anyway? What was the purpose of it for those all those years up until Christ from Moses? 1,400 years. Well, Paul says, as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, the law, the Mosaic law was added or given to Moses and to Israel for a purpose for a certain period of time until the seed would come, until the Messiah would come. See, that's the point. Short period of time. When Jesus comes, a change will take place. Galatians 3.19. The law was added until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. What was the promise? The promise was Genesis chapter 12. That's what it's talking about. So the, God used the Mosaic law to manage his people until the seed came to the person of Jesus Christ. Then the Mosaic law had served its purpose up to that point. So it's temporary. By the way, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 10, the whole book of Hebrews is written to Christians to explain to them why Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus, the high priest and his Melchizedek priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is a greater sacrifice than any animal that was killed. The heavenly tabernacle and temple is greater than the earthly one that existed thousands of years ago. And all of those things were under the Mosaic Covenant. They were uh, the earthly temple, Moses, uh, the animal sacrifices, the Levitical priests. Those were all inferior to Jesus. And they were shadows or types. They're actually living prophecies of something greater that would come. So Aaron as a priest was literally a living metaphor of a priest on behalf of God to the people, and he was a living metaphor of Jesus, the great high priest. And that's why Hebrews says three times, everything under the Mosaic Covenant was a, sh a mere shadow of the greater reality that is eternal, that is in heaven, and that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Mosaic Law was temporary, and it was inferior in every respect. Number five, and by the way, that's, that's not neg negative. It sounds negative to say that it was inferior and a shadow. Those aren't my words. Those are Hebrews' words because it came from God. It's holy, righteous, and good, but it was preliminary. Uh, one of the values of the Mosaic Law under the days of Moses and even carrying over today is number five. The Mosaic Law was revelatory. It revealed things about God. The Mosaic Law was divine revelation, special revelation. One of the conduits by which God communicated to his people in the days of Moses and even unto this day, because we have it inscripturated in our Bible for us and we can go back and read it. And we are getting divine revelation from God, how God interacted with his people through the ages. God never changes. His character always stays the same. People don't change. Sinners don't change. God's requirements tell us something about himself. Remember when I said if you have you write down your we have the 21 rules at the McManus house on the refrigerator. I haven't looked like Adam in like two years, but anyway, they're there. The 21 rules of this house. 
that we adopted from somebody else. But again, laws reveal something about the lawmaker, and that's the greatest way that the Mosaic law is revelatory. The main thing it reveals is what God, the law giver, is like. And when you read the 613 commandments, you realize that, that God is holy. He hates sin. He must punish sin. He has provided a provision and substitute for sin that must be punished by punishing somebody else that is not guilty in the place of the sinner. That is the grace of God. That is the mercy of God. So everything in the Mosaic Law revealed something about an attribute or the character of God. And that's why I say that the Mosaic Law was revelatory. In a a sense, it defines who God is in a very picturesque tangible manner. That's one of the values, I think, and benefits for us as Christians. It's revelatory nature. Uh, go on to number six. The Mosaic Law was preparatory. And we hinted a little bit about this, uh, that it was preparing us for Christ. But there are other specific verses uh, that tell us how it was preparatory. Um, go to Galatians 3, and that's one of... Paul's main arguments, like I said, in Galatians 3 and 4, Paul's saying, Christian, you are not under the Mosaic law, but the law is not bad. It was good. It came from God. It had a specific purpose. It had a temporary purpose. It had a preparatory purpose. What was that preparatory purpose? Galatians 3.23, the Apostle Paul says this about the law. But before faith came, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in His sacrificial death and resurrection on our behalf before that historical reality with the coming of Christ, before faith in Christ came, we, and he's talking as a Jew now, because Paul was a Jew, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, keeper of the law. Before faith came and before I met Jesus, when I was under the Mosaic law, we were kept in custody. Wow. He got arrested by the law. He was in custody and in prison under the law. We, the Jews, were kept in custody under the law. God was restraining his, the, the Jews. And also, a lot of those laws commanded the Jews not to intermingle with other people. God didn't want to pollute the people of Israel because out of the loins of the nation of Israel, the Messiah had to come. And there's also a future for the nation of Israel as a national entity. So God wanted to preserve them as a nation. The oldest nation that has been preserved in terms of its identity, on planet Earth is the Jewish nation. And God accomplished that through the mechanism of the Mosaic Law. And that's kind of what Paul's talking about here. But before faith came, we the Jews were kept in custody under the Mosaic Law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law, the Mosaic Law, has become our tutor, our teacher, our pedagogy, our pedagogy to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So he's communicating one of the preparatory purposes of the Mosaic Law. God used the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law couldn't save anybody. All the law does is it condemns. You break it, you're busted. And all it does is keep hounding you and reminding you, you are a pathetic, lowly, helpless sinner in the need of a Savior. That's what it did. That's what it was supposed to teach them. And so when you do read the Ten Commandments, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. Wow, I start feeling guilty because I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this. And what it's supposed to be doing is preparing you, teaching you, leading you to the reality to admit you need a Savior. You can't 
save yourself. That is the tutorial preparatory component that Paul is talking about here. God used the Mosaic law to prepare the nation of Israel for the Messiah that they might embrace him and be saved. And by the way, there were plenty of Jews who embraced Jesus. The first church of Jerusalem was all Jews. 3,000, 5,000, and then a few more thousand. They were the remnant and minority, but the Jews, the believing Jews, they embraced Christ and the Mosaic law. God used that to prepare them, to convict them, to bring them humbly and low to their Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, I believe God is going to use the Mosaic law in the future with the nation of Israel to do the same thing. In Romans chapter 11, at the end of the chapter, verse 26, it says, all Israel will be saved. That is real. It's in the future. It's the real nation of Israel. They're going to be humbled. They're going to, be, uh, they're going to weep and mourn for the one whom they have pierced. The nation of Israel collectively in the future as an entity is going to be redeemed. And God is going to use the Mosaic law as a part of preparing Israel for that great national salvation. So the Mosaic law was preparatory to lead people in particular the Jews to Christ. And I believe we can actually use the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, to help lead sinners to Christ today. Because part of the revelatory nature of the Mosaic law is it defines sin for us. It tells us what sin is. Thou shalt not steal. Oh, I guess taking somebody else's property without asking and without permission is a sin. That's called stealing. God hates that. So the law defines sin. So when we're talking to an unbeliever, Usually when you're talking to an unbeliever, have you ever sinned or do you think you're going to go to hell someday? Oh, no, I'm not. I haven't done anything bad. I'm not a sinner. Well, and then you compare their life to the Mosaic law. And if they looked in the mirror of the Mosaic law, they would have to admit they are indeed sinful and break sins. God's commandments all the time as sinners. So it's preparatory. Number seven, the Mosaic law did not offer or provide salvation. I already mentioned this. A summary verse from the Apostle Paul, Galatians 3.21. And what he's saying is, God doesn't save people by law, by obedience to the law. Obeying the law will never save anybody. The way God saves people, and this was true with Adam, Eve, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, John, you, me. The way God saves people hasn't changed. It's not by obedience to human works. If I just do this, this, and this, that, that will not save anybody. doesn't earn God's favor. doesn't alleviate guilt. Salvation has always been by grace, initiated by God, a gracious Savior with a specific message, a specific saving message, specific good news by which sinners would be humbled, recognizing their sin, recognizing their need for a Savior outside of themselves, throwing themselves on this gracious Savior, the Creator God, pleading for His forgiveness and help, And in response to true faith, God saves the sinner. God initiates it, and He orchestrates every part of it every step of the way. That has never changed. The plan of salvation has never changed. Although theologians, whether dispensational or non-dispensational, have actually written, and even still some believe today, that there's more than one way of salvation. It's not uncommon where some would say, in the Old Testament... Saints were saved by obeying the Mosaic law. That is just not true. Paul says that in Romans 4. No. And then right here, Galatians 3, 21. Let's read it. Where Paul says, If a law had been given which was able to impart life, if it was possible, theoretically possible, that somebody can get saved by obeying a law, and what he's saying is it's, that is impossible. 
That's against God's plan. God doesn't save sinners through this plan of obeying the law. If a law had been given, which was able to impart salvation, eternal life, impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But it wasn't. The Mosaic law was not given for people to obey it and then get saved. That isn't how people got saved. And we don't get saved that way today. It is by grace, through faith, uh, apart from works. And that's why in the New Testament and also in Genesis 15:6, it says that Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. You know what that means? That is the moment that Abraham got justified and saved before God. God did it by grace, through faith, apart from works. That plan hasn't changed. So the Mosaic Law was not given to impart salvation. Number eight, Christ satisfied the law. Christ satisfied the law. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, the Pharisees and the Sadducees accused Jesus and Paul of being anti-Mosaic Law. As a matter of fact, that's how Paul got arrested, thrown in jail, and murdered. Because it was spearheaded by the Pharisees and Sadducees who accused the Apostle Paul of undermining the Mosaic Law or being against the Mosaic Law, which was not true. It was just that the Apostle Paul and Jesus had the right understanding about the law. They understood its purpose. The Pharisees did not. And so there was a lot of confusion. So Jesus is preaching now uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Thousands of people, thousands of people, no doubt Pharisees are sprinkled throughout this congregation on a hill as Jesus is belting out his teaching, which is in concert and consistent with the Mosaic Law and the rest of the Old Testament, which, but the Pharisees don't believe that. They will accuse him of abolishing the Mosaic Law, undermining the Mosaic Law. And that's why he says this, Matthew 5:17. Do not think, O ye Pharisees and Sadducees out there who influence people the wrong way. That's what he's doing. This is a preemptive strike on the part of Jesus against the Pharisees and Sadducees. Do not think that I came to abolish the law in a negative way. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. That's a phrase that means the entire Old Testament. Do not think I came to undermine or go against all the teachings of the Old Testament and all the prophecies of the Old Testament. On the contrary, just the opposite is true. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Isn't that amazing? Hundreds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. He fulfilled every single one or will continue to fill, fulfill all of them. All the teachings are consistent with the teaching and the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, For surely I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the Hebrew alphabet, not even a period, not a jot, not a semicolon, will be removed, shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus came to fulfill the law satisfy the law, meet the law's requirements. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus was a Jew, born in a Jewish family. He was born in a Jewish city, in the Promised Land. When he was eight days old, he was circumcised in accordance with the Mosaic Law. Everything Jesus did throughout his life, if it was required by the Mosaic Law, Jesus did it because he was a full-blooded Jew. Now, he never had to offer sacrifices for sin on his behalf because he was sinless. But everything else, circumcision, celebrating the Passover, he was celebrating himself. But he did it all. He was born 
under the Mosaic law, lived in 100% compliance of the law. And one of the ways that Jesus fulfilled the law is he's the only person in history that positively fulfilled the requirement of the law, meaning he obeyed all 613 commands perfectly to a T without ever sinning. He's the only one that ever did it. That's one of the ways that he fulfilled or satisfied the Mosaic law. That is amazing. And if you become a Christian, you are in Christ. Your identity is in Jesus Christ, which means legally, from God's point of view, you have satisfied, fulfilled, lived out the Mosaic law, all 613 requirements because of your identity in Christ. That is amazing. Christ satisfied the law. Uh, Number nine. Christians are not under the Mosaic law. (laughs) One of the main reasons is because the Mosaic law was given to the nation of Israel. The Mosaic law was not given to the church, the body of Christ. Huge distinction. There's a lot of other reasons. Christians are not under the Mosaic law. Christians are, do not live under the... Here it is. Listen carefully to my wording. Christians do not live under the authority of the Ten Commandments. Which is different than a statement, I believe in the Ten Commandments. I believe that... Thou shalt not murder is a sin, and I should refrain from doing it. But God didn't invent the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, in 1400 B.C. with Moses in the Ten Commandments. That decree was given 2,000 years before to Noah in Genesis 9, when God told Noah when he got off the ark, Thou shalt not kill. And if you kill, or somebody else kills, they deserve to have their life snuffed out with capital punishment. That was not given under the Mosaic law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I believe in the truth, the moral truth of that law, but I don't believe it because God gave it to to Moses in 1400 B.C. Because in 4000 B.C., God gave that command to Adam and Eve. Very clearly. One man, one woman, for life, inseparable. And that's why Jesus said in the New Testament, what God has brought together, let no man divorce. So the command to not violate your spouse came 2,000 years before the Mosaic one of the Ten Commandments. And that truth is also reiterated in the New Testament. So uh, when I say that we are not under the Mosaic law, we are under the authority of law, though. We have plenty of laws. I mean, just count sometime all the imperatives in the New Testament that a Christian is obligated to obey. We saw 60 of them in the book of James. So as a Christian, you can't say I'm without law. I'm not under the authority of law. I am under the authority of 60 imperatives that I know exist in James, and there's a lot more. That's a lot of law. No, Moses is not my lawgiver. Jesus is my lawgiver. He's the greater lawgiver. Did you know that Jesus has higher standards than Moses? So the Christian literally, uh, from the New Testament, here are some phrases that are used. The Christian is not under the Mosaic law or the Old Covenant. The Christian is under the New Covenant. We're going to see that. Uh, in a sec- so let's go on to number 10. Christians are not under the Mosaic law, but number 10, Christians are under the law of Christ. That's Paul's terminology. We are under the law of the Spirit. That's Paul's terminology through the Holy Spirit. We, under the, we are under the law of faith. We are not under the Mosaic covenant. We are under the new covenant. So there's plenty of authority that we are under and obligated to obey and fulfill. And so these are some. So 1 Corinthians 9.21, Paul tells the Corinthians, you are under the law of Christ. You are not under the law of Moses anymore. So am I under the authority of the Ten Commandments? No, I'm not under the authority of the Ten Commandments. I, I am under the authority of the law of Christ, which, by the way, includes, get this, all 
ten of the commandments. You mean the Sabbath is somewhere in there under the law of Christ, under the umbrella of the law of Christ? Absolutely. That's the whole point of Hebrews 3 and 4. That the literal day under the Mosaic law of the seventh day of the, the Sabbath day was a living metaphor of a greater reality of a Sabbath rest that believers would experience and it's fulfilled at the coming of Christ when you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you enter into Sabbath rest and peace with the eternal God and you're fulfilling literally God's original intent of the Sabbath day. That's the theology of Hebrews 4. And that's why in Colossians 2, Paul says, don't let anybody tell you, Christian, or try to obligate you to the Sabbath of the Mosaic Law in Colossians 2. Because if they do, they're being legalistic. You're a Christian. You have now entered into eternal Sabbath rest, peace with Jesus Christ, forgiven sin in this life, and a future home in heaven forever where we will have eternal peace and rest. Amen. So the law of Christ actually is higher and includes more than the Mosaic Law. If you want to obey the Mosaic Law, you're a sissy. Because the bar is higher under the law of Christ. I mean, think about it this way. The Mosaic, the Ten Commandments said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Alright, I'll bear and grin it and grit my teeth and do whatever I can and I will never physically commit adultery against my spouse. But it could very well be you've been married for 30 years and you committed adultery against your spouse 50 zillion times in your heart. Jesus comes along and says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, do not even look on a woman to lust for her because if you did, you committed adultery with her already in your heart. The standard that God requires is now higher. So Christians live under a higher standard of law under the law of Christ. It's more difficult. The standard is higher. But at the same time, God has empowered us supernaturally with His Spirit inside of us to be able to actually fulfill that commandment which the Jews could not do. Because we have the Spirit of God living in us as Christians and this Holy Spirit of God helps us actually fulfill the law of Christ as God desires and requires. It's amazing. So look at... And this is called, and the way this is possible is through the New Covenant. Go to uh, Jeremiah, about the middle of your Bible. And this will prepare us for communion. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. <clears throat> okay, so you got the Abrahamic covenant, 2000 BC, four, or 1800 BC, 1400 BC, the Mosaic covenant, conditional covenant between God and the Jews. Then 500 B.C., Israel has a track record of just messing up continually and constantly and playing the harlot and turning against their God. They weren't holding up their end of the covenant. And so God said, okay, that's it. Actually, he had this plan in eternity past. Well, there's going to be a new covenant that's going to replace the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. It is not replacing the Abrahamic covenant. It's actually a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. But it's going to replace the Mosaic covenant. And there's a contrast. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, and that's with Christ, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And as a result, recipients will be the church as well. We will get to partake in the new covenant. Verse 32. It's not going to be like the old covenant that I made with their fathers Moses in the day which I took them uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put, well, here's the difference. I will put my law within them. And on their hearts I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the big difference, I'm not going to write the law on stone and on paper. I'm going to literally write it on their heart. And then uh, complementary chapters, Ezekiel 36, where he says, in addition in the New Covenant, I'm going to write the law of God on their hearts, and I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit to live in them. Every believer in the New Testament uh, covenant has the Spirit living in them. In the Old Testament the saints did not have the Holy Spirit living in them, helping them fulfill the law of God. So we have supernatural power accessible that the Old Testament saints did not have, and that is the Holy Spirit living in you and living in me as a result of the promise of the new covenant, allowing us to fulfill the higher standard called the law of Christ. What is the essence of the law of Christ? That's number 11. Uh, don't show it. Well, anyway, I was gonna, here's a question that I ask people. What fulfills the law. And I've asked that to Sunday school classes. I've asked that to some of my seminary students. And they usually stumble over that. Every once in a while they'll say, well, Christ, which is true. But even more specifically, what, according to Paul, what fulfills the law? And the answer is love. So that's number 11. Love fulfills the law, the requirements of the law, even the Mosaic law. Actually, love fulfills the requirement of any law. Because if you love the lawgiver, you're not going to violate his law. If my children perfectly love me, which is impossible because they're sinners, they would never violate the 21 laws of our house. Same thing with us. Love fulfills the law. And we can fulfill the laws that God requires because God has saved us. We are in Christ. The Spirit of God lives in us. The love of God has been shed abroad in our heart. And as a result, we can love the lawmaker in a way that fulfills his requirements on our behalf. How, and then the next question is, how does love fulfill the law? How is it that love fulfills the law? This was a talking point in Sunday school. and We had a good discussion about it. Some people were surprised. Some people never thought of it. Some people, I think, had it in their frame of reference, but the way that love fulfills the law is if you perfectly loved God and your fellow man, you would never violate any of the Ten Commandments. If you loved God, Yahweh, for who He was, you'd never have false gods. You'd never have an idol. You would always uh, fulfill His religious requirements. You would not blaspheme His name. If you loved your fellow man perfectly all the time, you would never cheat or sin against your spouse ever. You would never steal anybody else's property because you love them, your fellow man. You would never kill anybody because you love them. You would never lie to anybody because you love the truth and love them. That's how love fulfills the law. And that's what Paul means when he said, love fulfills the law. And Jesus Christ, because of his love for us and because we are one in him, his love is shed abroad in our heart. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is love. And if we live and walk in the Spirit, we can literally fulfill the law of Christ because love fulfills the law. God's greatest requirement is love. So that's why in your marriage, how many rules should you have in your marriage? Zero. But we're sinful people, aren't we? So maybe we have one or two. Let's not fight in front of the kids. At least not punch. But anyway, um, the fact that we have laws <laughs> tells us we are imperfect sinners, doesn't it? But 
Ideally, if we truly loved each other, we should have no laws in our marriage. Why? Because we love each other. We're driven by love. We walk by love. We serve out of love. That's what Scripture in the New Testament requires. Husband, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. That's also a requirement for wives in the book of Titus. They are to love their husbands. If we did that all the time, we wouldn't have any laws in our marriage. And that's how love fulfills the law. And finally, number 12, Mosaic. The Mosaic law is still useful for believers and unbelievers. It's useful for unbelievers to define sin for them and to show them how they are sinning against God, their Creator, and why they need a Savior. So you can use it in evangelism. And the way it's useful for believers... um, Actually, there's a couple verses. There is uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training, for correction in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God might be fully equipped and a mature Christian. So we can use the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, to refine us, to teach, to learn about the character of God, to learn about sin and how to deal with sin, and also to learn... And look at Christ and how wonderful and majestic He is of how He fulfills everything that the law predicted He would be. A gracious, wonderful, awesome Savior who never sinned and fulfilled every requirement of the law with His perfect life. So He fulfilled the law in a positive manner. And then He fulfilled the law of the Mosaic Law in a negative manner because of the penalty that the law required when it was broken. And even though Jesus never violated the Mosaic Law and didn't deserve to be condemned to death by the Mosaic Law, He willingly subjected Himself as a substitutionary death for every single person who deserved to be executed in accordance with the Mosaic Law. So Jesus fulfilled the negative penalty of the requirements of the Mosaic Law and Jesus fulfilled the positive requirements of the Mosaic Law. And that's why if you believe that Jesus is your substitute... He died for you. He is your Savior. You are in Him. You've confessed your sins to Him. You've asked Him to come and save you of your sin, to be your Savior and Lord. Then you're adopted into His family. You are one in Christ. You're identified with Him. And as a result, you have fulfilled all the requirements of the law, the positive laws and the negative laws. And part of the Mosaic law was celebrating the Passover meal once a year, which was a bloody, grisly gruesome family affair where you went and adopted the cutest lamb you could find, keep it in your house, name it, call it something, treat it as a pet for 14 days, and then you execute it and blood squirting all over the place and you splatter that blood all over the front of your house. That was the original Passover that was done. And God was making a point. Sin deserves death. Sin deserves a perfect substitute. Sin deserves a sinless Substitute, And that's what Jesus is, the Lamb of God. And with that, uh, we're going to go into communion now and celebrate communion. And so what I want you to think about during communion right now as you're uh, holding the cup and the bread is, you know, if you're a Christian, just thank God for the new covenant. By faith in Jesus Christ and the fact that He fulfilled all the requirements of the law and He is your Savior, He has fulfilled the law on your behalf. And you have bypassed death that is required by the law. And His one sacrifice is sufficient for all time. And He has transformed Passover into communion, which is really a more blessed celebration, isn't it? Giving thanks to God of what He has done on your behalf. So if you know Jesus Christ today, uh, you are invited to celebrate in communion today. So I, I would ask you,
uh, about the first half of the church. You can come up here down the center aisle. We've got two lines. Uh, grab the cup, grab the bread, hold it, go back, uh, have a seat in your pew till everybody else is done. The back half of the sanctuary here, we have some in the back as well. So go down the middle two rows and then come around. And then when everybody has their cup and the bread, we're going to go ahead and eat together and thank the Lord Jesus Christ for being our sacrifice. So go ahead and uh, feel free to come up. Uh, if you look at Luke, you don't need to turn to Luke, but in Luke 22, because we frequently read from 1 Corinthians 11 uh, when Jesus gave uh, communion to the church. But in Luke 22 is the actual historical event where Jesus was with his apostles. And when he took the bread and the cup, when he took the cup, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. He was quoting referring to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So Jesus initiated, inaugurated, and enacted the new covenant by which believers and the church are under. Just a a gracious gift from God. No longer under the old covenant, but under the new covenant. Uh, The liberty we have in Christ, the law of Christ, uh, energized by the indwelling Spirit of God that we might be able to actually please God as righteous, holy saints. And we owe it all to our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he said that night, do this in memory of his work, and we will. So let's eat together. And I, I want to say a, a closing prayer. Um, and then we're going to go ahead and sing a song. Uh, but before we do, if you could stand in preparation for our closing prayer and our closing song. Uh, But may God bless you today and the rest of this week. Celebrate your liberty in Jesus Christ as a believer this day and this week, thanking the Lord Jesus uh, for his death on your behalf. That will bring great supernatural peace to your heart and your mind and alleviate a lot of the problems of the world. That's what Jesus wants to do for you as a, a child of God. Uh, just a reminder, we got some folks that are out of pocket today from travel, sickness, and whatever. And anybody that can hang around and give an extra hand to clean up, especially here in the sanctuary, would be a wonderful help and blessing to the rest of us. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day and uh, the, the wonderful gift and privilege to be with your people, the saints, the body of Christ. Thank you for the treasure of your word where we, we always are learning wonderful truths. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the eternal high priest of the new covenant. And thank you for your sacrificial death, your resurrection, your powerful ascension and rule and intercession on behalf of your people even now and for ongoing forgiveness of sin and ongoing strength and power we have in you through the Holy Spirit. We thank you. We love you so much and we commit our time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.